please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 is where we'll begin this morning. Before Tristan and I had kids, we took uh, a European vacation. Wanted to take her back to uh, Prague where I'd lived. And uh, while we were in Prague, we went and stayed with a missionary couple that I had known from my previous trip, uh, Barry and Jean Kaiser. And Barry and Jean were probably, I would guess, in their uh, late 60s, early 70s at that time. Uh, but just super dynamic, uh, really energetic. And we sat down the first night at the table. They said, well, let us see your itinerary. So we laid out our itinerary for them and showed them where we were going to go. And they, they said, you know, kind of gently and kindly, they said, this is, this is kind of boring. <laughs> you know what you need to do is you need to get on an all-night train and go down to Italy. And then from Italy, you need to go over to Switzerland. From Switzerland, you need to come up to, to Munich and get through Salzburg. And, you know, they begin to map out this in, incredible trip and plan. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, they, Barry and Jean are kind of like Joshua and Caleb. And Tristy and I are kind of like the, the wilderness generation that died, right? We, we want a little bit of adventure, but not too much adventure. Kind of like the status quo. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I want to be like Barry and Jean Kaiser. I want to be like Joshua and Caleb who got their toughest assignment when they were 80 years old. I want to just press on all the way through. This morning we're going to look at that story of Joshua taking the the nation of Israel into the battle at Jericho. Uh, But before we do, I want to lay a a bit of a theological background for that historical event. And we find some theological background for it in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Right of the Hebrews tells us this. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest... Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What is he talking about? Who is he referring to? The they that he's talking about is the wilderness generation who got to the edge of the promised land, but because of fear, pulled back. Because of fear of the giants in the land and their strength and their cities that were fortified and a lack of faith in God, they chose not to obey. They turned around and as a result, God said, you will not enter into my rest. That is, you will not enter into the promised land. Your generation doesn't get to go in. And so entering into the promised land became, for Israel, a, a picture, a metaphor of entering into the blessing of all that God had promised for those who obey. Okay? It's not a metaphor of salvation. The generation that wandered in the wilderness and died in the wilderness, remember that included Moses and Aaron and Miriam and the 70 elders included everybody, right? It it, it wasn't a a statement that they're not saved or they're not going to heaven. That's not what it's about. It's a picture of walking by faith and in obedience and as a result getting to enjoy all of the blessings that God had promised. That's the point of the metaphor. Now, let's keep reading here. Verse 4. For God said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, 
today, saying through David after so long a time, just as, it, as he had said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The writer of the Hebrews compares our rest with the rest that God experienced. God created for six days and on the seventh he rested. That is, on the seventh day, God enjoyed the the fruit of his labors. He enjoyed what he had made. He stepped back and took pleasure in all that he had created. Going into the promised land, we're told, is in a sense the way that we also enter into that. Because the promised land is a picture of the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God and all the blessings that God has promised. And Joshua brought the people into the promised land, but they didn't wipe out all the enemies. They they continued to struggle and they continued to wrestle with idolatry and they continued to wrestle because their sin from time to time with, with famine and oppressors and all that kind of thing. And so they didn't get to enjoy the fullness of all that God had promised. And so this metaphor, this symbol remains for generation after generation after generation. So David picks up the theme and he says, you know, this still applies to God's people. Walk by faith. Walk by faith and obey all that God has called you to do so that you can conquer the enemies around you, enjoy the blessings that God has promised you. And so this morning we're going to study a historical event. Now this really happened. Joshua really led the Israelites to, to battle the people of Jericho and see the walls fall down. There was a real physical battle, but that physical battle has spiritual significance and it was intended to have spiritual significance. And so what I want to talk about this morning is three principles for spiritual conquest that we see in this historical event. Okay? So three principles of spiritual conquest. I want you to turn with me back to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, and we will begin reading in verse 1. Joshua 6, verse 1. It says, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, and no one had came in. They heard that Israel was coming, and they saw the camp across the river that had come and was about to attack, and so they shut up the city tight. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, With its king and the valiant warriors, you shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, And the people will go up, every man straight ahead. First principle of spiritual conquest is this. It requires, it demands, complete and utter dependence upon God. They couldn't conquer Jericho on their own. And we can't experience spiritual victory on our own. We cannot. It utterly and completely depends upon God. I want you to notice with me just one small observation from verse 4. It says, also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns. Normally when the Israelites were called into battle, the priests pulled out silver trumpets. The silver trumpet was the trumpet that called the people into battle. The sound is very distinct. It doesn't sound like a ram's horn. The silver trumpet was the trumpet for battle. The ram's horn was the horn that was sounded to call people to worship. Okay? So he says, call the people to worship. 
Because this battle will be fundamentally a spiritual battle. You may just see it on the physical plane, but this is fundamentally a spiritual battle. So pull out the horn that calls the people to worship because I need to have them come prepared to worship because the battle they're entering into is a spiritual battle. Men and women, everything in your life is spiritual. <laughs> we tend to, to just put everything in little boxes and we, we come on Sundays and this is our spiritual event for the week, but all of life is spiritual. Your job is spiritual. Your family is spiritual. Parenting is spiritual. Your relationship with your neighbors, that's spiritual. Your body and what you do with your body, that's spiritual. All of life is spiritual. All of life is intended to live in utter and complete dependence upon God. That's the point. So blow the ram's horn, call the people to worship because they're not going to win this battle because they're better trained or they have superior weaponry. That's not why they can conquer. It says in the book of Hebrews, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. Not because they had catapults and battering rams and they were so powerful and strong, but it was by faith. Now, let me illustrate this for you in a visual way. This is a a drawing of a cross-section of the walls at Jericho. And what you'll notice, it's not great resolution, but let me point out what you're seeing here, okay? The bottom is a retaining wall. That retaining wall was about 15 to 20 feet high. On top of the retaining wall was the first wall of the city, which was another 15 to 20 feet high. Then there was a space in between where sometimes houses were placed, And then the actual wall of the city on the crest of the hill, which again, another 15 to 20 feet high. So it was about 50 feet above where the people were standing. And those walls were each, at a minimum, about six feet thick. These were incredibly strong fortifications. They had to be, because Jericho was a gateway city. It was right at the ford of the river to cross over the Jordan River and enter into the land of Canaan. And so it was an incredibly heavily fortified city. Difficult to penetrate. You see here a man is standing at the base of the retaining wall that was excavated. And then on top of the retaining wall, you would have had another wall, 15 to 20 feet high. And then a space, and then another wall, 15 to 20 feet high, six feet thick. Israelites did not have the machinery, they did not have the the, the technology, the capability to bust into the city. It was simply impossible. But when they walked in faith and obedience to God, and they shouted, we're told the walls of Jericho crumbled. Okay? They crumbled. Now, if they had had uh, battering rams and, and siege works and catapults, which direction would the wall have fallen? It would have fallen in, right? But excavations have demonstrated the walls didn't fall in when Jericho was conquered. The walls crumbled, and some of the debris fell out, and so there was a nice ramp for the people to walk up and down and walk straight into the city. However, there was one section of the wall that didn't crumble. The poor people would live in this gap area. They couldn't live inside the city. They couldn't afford that. So they would live in the gap, and they would attach their houses to the wall. And so one section of the wall on the north side of the city didn't crumble. All the rest of the wall crumbled, but one section didn't crumble. Why didn't one section crumble? Because that's where Rahab lived. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell, but not all of them. Because one woman believed, and she was saved. We know exactly where Rahab lived. Isn't that amazing? This is a victory that had to be accomplished by faith. It could not be accomplished in any other way whatsoever. 
Book of Psalms, it says, for by their own sword, they did not possess the land and their own arm did not save them. But your, your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, because you favored them. That's how they experienced victory. Again, in the book of Deuteronomy, it is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before, we, before you. You shall dispossess them. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. All of life, men and women, is spiritual. All of life requires that we constantly, continuously be in deep and utter dependence upon God. Now, later the Israelites would have to pick up their swords, right? But at this first battle, as they're entering into the promised land, God is setting a precedent for them so that they understand that all of their battles are going to be fundamentally spiritual, right? So in fact, what we see is the the Israelites' participation in the battle at Jericho really doesn't accomplish much of anything, does it? They walk around the city one time, and the walls don't crumble a little bit, right? And then crumble a little bit more. Their walking doesn't cause anything to happen at all. They walk, nothing happens. They walk, nothing happens. Six days, they walk, nothing happens. When you go to the grocery store and you finish getting all of your groceries, you start heading up toward the checkout line. What do you do? You look for the shortest line, right? And, you know, if you're like me, you get a little more scientific about it. I, I try to gauge which checker is going to be moving the fastest, right? I, I try and think, is there seniority here and tenure? I'm kind of watching a little bit as I'm walking up. Are they ding, 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 zipping it through or kind of looking at stuff, figuring out? Do they have, do they have a bagger with them? Or is there just one bagger and it's not on that line, right? So I'm not just looking at the length of the line. There are other factors that have to be taken in, Correct. Right? So you, you, you choose your line based on that. And it's very frustrating when you choose incorrectly. You might have to make a last-minute adjustment, you know, pop over this line. Or if you're lucky, you know, you know with a uh, other salesperson, oh, I'm opening up a new line. Oh, I was, you, know, you just jump in there, right? That's, there's, because there's a goal. Get out quick. Right? So I want you to imagine for a minute that you're moving forward in the line and you're the next person up and the other person's put all their stuff and then they put the little bar there and you've actually started to nudge the bar up. Right, So you can start to put your stuff there. And right when you do that, God whispers in your ear and he says, go to the back of that line. Seriously, God, that, that would be counterproductive to the goal here, which is get out quick, right? He says, no, move to the back of the line. Trust me. So you move back the line and sure, somebody else comes up and jumps in your spot. And you're, so you're waiting, right? And then you, you wait and you wait, wait. There you are again and the bar is there and you begin to nudge it up. You're about to put your stuff on and God whispers in your ear and says, move to the back of that line. In obedience and faith, I will move to the back line because God's speaking and I haven't heard his voice before, so this is important. Kroger's, take off your shoes. This is holy ground, right? So, so you do it again and you get right to the edge and you're pushing your stuff up and what happens? God says, no, move to the back of that line and you do that six times. And then God says, just leave your card here for a minute and run around Kroger <laughs> seven times. Seven times. Are you serious? God, what, what is the point? That is not accomplishing anything, and that's the point. Their efforts accomplished nothing. In fact, on the final day, when they ran around Jericho, or they walked around Jericho seven times, the circumference of Jericho is, is one mile. So they walked seven miles in the hot desert sun. They were beat down. They had no strength left to fight because God was going to fight for them. 
And God had to put them in that place where they realized we can't accomplish this victory. We can't make this happen. We can't get this done. And you know what, men and women, God will do exactly the same thing in your lives. I don't want to tell you God might do that in your life. I'm going to tell you God will do that in your life. It may not be continuous, but from time to time, God is going to just so rattle your cage and so crush you that you reach out to him and you say, God, I cannot, only you can. And that's when you find God's strength. And you cannot experience God's strength until you're in that place. And that's such a, a, a terribly discouraging place to be at times. But when we look up and we recognize, no, God is at work here, and I can trust him, then I can, as Paul said, I I embrace my weakness because God's power is perfected in my weakness because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And that is the paradox of the spiritual life. First principle, spiritual conquest depends utterly, completely, entirely on us depending on God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Author named Paul Tom said this. He said, the real battle about which we are reading is not with the Canaanites at all. It is with God's own people. All this blowing of trumpets, all of this numerical listing of sevens were not really necessary to walk, knock down a little wall. God was not frantically collecting his energy so that he could destroy Jericho. He could have just spoken and Jericho would have been vaporized. The real battle of Jericho was with the human heart, not with the wall of a city. God was seeking to overcome the Israelites rather than simply overcome the Canaanites. I think that's really profound. Okay. That was the point. God could have just said, Jericho falls, I falls, Bethel falls, Jerusalem falls. Just go in. I already knocked on all the walls and removed all the inhabitants. No, you're going to learn how to experience spiritual warfare because all of life is spiritual. A few years ago, reading a great story by Watchman Nee, so that one time he walked up on a river, and as he walked up, a man had just fallen into the river. The man was obviously drowning. He was going under the water, and he would come up, and as he came up, he would scream, I can't swim, save me, I can't swim, and he'd flail around, and then he'd go under the water again, he'd pop back up, he'd get another breath of air and go under, and it was happening over and over again, and people were getting frantic. In fact, uh, they were all yelling at one man who apparently was a very strong swimmer, and they said, save him, save him. Why won't you jump in and save him? And the man was just standing. Watchman, he said the man was just standing at the side of the river watching this man drown. And finally, the man went down a, a, a final time, and it, and it looked like certainly he, he has no more energy. He will not come up again. And as he went down that final time, the man dove into the water and pulled him to the shore. And later, Watchman, he asked me, he said, why did you do that? He said, because he was still too strong in himself. He would have drowned and he would have pulled me down too. And so I waited until he was so completely weak that he wouldn't struggle anymore. He would just rest. And then I could save him. And when that's what God does in our lives. If he's not doing it now, I promise he will. Because we only know God's strength when we are completely, completely weak before him. First principle, spiritual conquest depends, it requires, it demands on our complete and utter dependence before God. Second principle, spiritual conquest requires uninterrupted reliance. I want you to read with me. Again, chapter 7, now chapter 7, verse 1. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. It says, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban, for Achan, 
the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the son of, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need go up to Ai. Do not make all the people go up there, for the people there are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about thirty-six of their men, pursued them, from the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became like water. What happened? Well, apparently one man, just one man, took some of the things that were under the ban. God had told the people, when you go into Jericho and the walls fall down, you enter the city, wipe everything out. Don't take anything. Don't take animals. Don't take gold. Don't take silver. Don't take anything for yourselves. Completely and utterly destroy the city. But, but one man sinned. One man sinned. And as a result, the whole community was weakened by this supposedly secret sin. Look at me, chapter 7, verse 19. It says, Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and I took them. Behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. What happened? What happened was Achan fell prey to the lie that Satan has told us over and over and over again. God isn't good. There are things that God has that God is withholding from you that you really need to have in your life so that your life will be rich and satisfying and fulfilling. You need to take them. You cannot trust God in his goodness. Remember Adam and Eve. There's one tree from which you cannot eat and they forgot that they got all of the garden to eat from and they focused their attention on the one tree that they didn't have and that's the deceit that Satan has been committing over and over and over and over again. God isn't good. There's something he's holding back from you. Now, the tragedy of this is at the next city, the battle at at Ai, Ai, God was going to give them the spoil. But he hadn't told them that yet. They would have to trust that the land they were entering into would be good and would provide for them, and he couldn't. He didn't trust that God was good. He also was deceived into thinking somehow he could cover sin. If I just dig a hole in the dirt, no one will know. Right, And we live in a generation in which that's so easy in so many ways to think no one will see my sin. No one will know about my sin. But God knows. And he said, be sure your sins will find you out because God knows. He knows all things. And so Achan tries to cover it, but it can't be covered because God knows and God is good and he's gracious and kind, but Achan didn't believe that. And so Achan sinned and as a result, the whole community was weakened. The whole community suffered 36 men died as a result of his sin. But he wasn't the only one who sinned. The whole community sinned because they trusted in themselves. Right? We would have thought, gosh, you saw Jericho. You saw this incredible battle. God battled for you. God knocked down the wall. Now, just trust in God and he will continue to give you victory. But no, they went up with great self-confidence. What did they say here? Well, the people are few. There's not very many. So just send up 3,000 of our men. This will be an easy one. 
They didn't consult God. They didn't ask God. They didn't trust in God. They laid out their own plans. They said, we can, we can handle this. We did Jericho, right? No, you didn't do Jericho. God did Jericho and you walked in. And this is key to our spiritual lives. We must continuously be vigilant and dependent upon God. And what you see in Israel's history really is an example for us, intended as an example for us, because they would depend and trust, and then they would trust in themselves, and then they'd depend on God, and then they'd trust in themselves, because they'd win and lose and win and lose. They'd win when they're trusting in God, and then they'd lose when they trusted in themselves. Shortly after, they will go in, and they'll, they'll conquer I, and then they'll go up, and they're about to go into their next battle, and some men will show up, and these men show up, they're Their clothes are dirty and they're torn and their bread is stale and their water bottles are empty. And they say, we've come from a far off distant place. We heard about your strength and power as a military and the greatness of God. We want to make a covenant with you so that you won't destroy us. And the people say, well, how do we know that you're from a far off place? How do we know you don't live in our land that God gave to us? And they say, well, look at the bread, right? Look at what you can see. Clothes are torn. Our water bottles are empty. Our bread is stale. All our provisions are gone. We must be telling the truth. Look at what your eyes alone can see. Notice what it says here in Joshua chapter 9. Verse 14. It says, So the men of Israel took some of their provisions, and they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. And then they found out that they were Gibeonites and they lived in the land. Jesus would say to his disciples while he was about to enter into intense spiritual warfare with Satan, about to go to the cross, he would say, you three come with me and I want you to watch and pray. Don't just pray, watch and pray. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling about like a roaring lion, and you are often most vulnerable after your greatest spiritual victories. Stay on guard. Why are you men sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for even an hour? Don't you recognize? Don't you realize we're about to enter into intense spiritual battle? You can't sleep through it because if you do sleep through it, you will be destroyed. Wake up, pay attention, be on the alert. Second principle in spiritual conquest is this. We must have uninterrupted alliance. And men and women, for me, this is, I think this is one of the keys. This is where I struggle most deeply is I'll rely and then I'll forget. and I'll rely and I'll forget. And what I need is to create structures and, and practices in my life that keep me continuously reliant. You know, one of the greatest things for my spiritual life is that I have to preach to you every week. I mean, seriously, then I have to be praying and I have to be in the word. It forces me to and I go, gosh, I wish I were more spiritual than that. But thank you, God, that you've wired this into my life. And you need those structures too. You may not preach every week, but that's one of the reasons I constantly encourage you get in a group with other men and women where you're studying the word. So, So you have that consistency and that accountability and that reminder that all of life is spiritual. And in the midst of those groups, you're not just talking about the word, but you're talking about your children and how truth applies to your children and your family and your school and your work. All of life is spiritual. Uninterrupted reliance. Third principle, spiritual conquest requires vigorous repentance. Read with me chapter 7, verse 6. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, 
Alas, Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites. To destroy us? Is that why you brought us here? If only we had been willing to dwell on the other side, beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. What will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. (laughs) Why are you down on your face? I I find that very interesting. God didn't say, oh, I'm so grateful that you're repentant. He said, what are you whining about? Get up. Why are you blaming this on me? Don't put this back on me. Get up. There's sin in your midst. Deal with it and move on. Deal with it quickly. Deal with it aggressively. Deal with it specifically. Deal with the sin in your midst and then you can move on. So get up. Okay, get up and act. Verse 11. Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. They have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate or set yourselves apart tomorrow. For thus the Lord God of Israel has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then, you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near family by family. The family which the Lord takes shall come near by households. The household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel." I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and he said, uh, he, had, he had read through this passage, he knew where I was, was going, and he said, you know, it seems like God and Israel are kind of mean <laughs> in this passage. Like, oh, well, yeah, it does kind of seem that way, doesn't it? How are we to understand this? I, I want to give you two words. Okay? This is, it's an enormously significant theological issue, but I want to just give you two words to think of. The first is trust, and the second is truth trust. God does, some, does things sometimes, and he doesn't tell us why. God does things in the world, uh, or even allows things in the world, and we don't get the full picture. We don't know where the story is going. We don't know where the story will end. We don't know what's driving things underneath, and we're told, trust me, trust me that I am good, and I am powerful, and I choose when it's best to intervene. Do you, do you trust me? Because trust is the foundation for every relationship of love. Okay. I want you to imagine that I uh, were to come home this afternoon. As I walk into the house, my wife's cell phone chirps. It goes beep, beep. I hear a little chirp, and I, I walk over to it because she's get, just gotten a text message. But as I'm walking over, she reaches down and she takes her phone and says, you can't see that. Ooh. What might I think? What might I think? If I don't trust my wife, I say, she's talking to somebody she shouldn't be talking to. But if I trust my wife, I say, mm, 
she may be dealing with somebody on something very confidential and it's not appropriate for me to see. And so she's guarding that confidence. That's who my wife is. Or maybe she's planning a really fun surprise for me. She's about to cook me a really great meal and she doesn't want to see the, the recipe just came up. And, but I know her. I know her. And so if she says, don't look at it, I don't think twice. Because I trust her. Okay, trust. Trust. The second is truth. The fact is the Canaanites were exceptionally wicked people. Deeply, deeply wicked people. And God had, in his patience, kept the Israelites out of Canaan for 400 years, giving the Canaanites an opportunity to repent because God is patient towards sinners, always. God gives sinful people like us Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent because God is so very patient with those that he wants to draw into his family, who who he longs to have in his family. Recall, last week we quoted this verse. I want to quote it again. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. What's the promise? To fully and finally bring in the kingdom of God. And when he does so, any of those who reject him will be wiped out. But God is not slow to bring about that promise. Right now he's waiting to bring about that promise because he wants to invite more and more and more people to come in and enjoy relationship with him. That's why God is holding back. God is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Because what drives God is love. That's what drives God. He doesn't ever take any delight in the destruction of wicked people. He delights when one sinner, even one, one tiny lost sheep is repentant and comes back and is discovered and found. Then he says, let's throw a party for that one because I love individuals. I love people. I love you. Men and women, that's the foundation of the gospel because God is love and God first loved us. That's why we love him. Not because we chased after God, but because God was chasing after us. And finally, we, we woke up and we discovered God loves me. And we turn and say, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for giving me Jesus. And the moment that you say that, the moment that you believe that Jesus died for your sins, your debt is removed and you have life forever. You belong to the family of God. And you know what? You can never be removed from the family of God because God's strong and God's faithful. Okay? That's why you're safe. And so God held his people out because he wanted the surrounding peoples to repent. And we see a few repenting and joining the nation of Israel, don't we? Rahab is one illustration. He actually protected and guarded the wall so it wouldn't crush her family so that she could come out, she and all her people. And did she, did she get to come out because she was more righteous? No, remember her occupation? Okay. When she wasn't better, she didn't behave better, she believed she believed in the Lord. And there were others that came out as well. Look with me in Joshua chapter 8, verse 33. This is a worship service where all Israel is gathered after their victory, the battle, and I. It says in verse 33, all Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before, before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Anybody was welcome. And so there were almost certainly Egyptians that who had stuck with Israel the whole time. There were people from the surrounding areas of the land who had seen God's power and God's glory. And they said, we want a part of that. That's the one true God. They're not called out by name in this passage, but there were those who were gathered in because God wanted these people to repent and believe in him. He wanted to expand his family. But once you're in the family of God, you know what? 
normally God is much more quick to discipline his own. If you belong to the family of God, expect God will be more quick to discipline you because you belong to him. And when I hear about two boys getting in trouble at school and one of them's mine, I don't really care that much what happens to the other boy, I'm, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be busting chops with my boy, right? Because he is mine. Because I care about his character. He belongs to me. Someone else can take care of the other boy. This one is mine. And you see that principle over and over and over in Scripture. God disciplines his own people much more quickly and often much more severely, especially when God is doing a, a great and magnificent new work. Think Acts chapter 5, when the church was first emerging and Ananias and Sapphira showed up, they lied about how much they gave and what happened? Boom, boom, you're done. Because if we are going to establish this new glorious work of God on earth, men and women, we must be holy. And God disciplines us because God knows how destructive sin is in our lives. He loves us that much that he disciplines us. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. God deals with us as if he is father and we are sons and daughters because we are. Does the discipline seem pleasant? No, the author of Hebrews says, oh, it's not pleasant at all. It's painful. But God wants the peaceful fruit of righteousness to grow in your life. And so he steps in and disciplines. And that's what he does in the nation of Israel. This isn't a statement that Achan was not a believer in the Lord. It's a statement that as a member of God's family, he had polluted the covenant community and they needed to be holy as they went into battle so that they could be strong. And so the question for us is, how do we deal with sin in our lives? When God points it out, are are we radical like that? Do Do we... Put another blanket on top and think God won't see it won't come out. We say, no, no, let's, let's pull back that blanket and let's pull it back quickly and let's dig deep and let's get everything out that we have stolen. Did you notice the phrase there? It said, the man who was taken with the spoil, not the man who took the spoil, but the man who was taken with the spoil. That is, the spoil came and captured him. Okay? It deceived him and it took him. And so, He tried to hide it and cover it, and we often do the same in our lives, and God says, no, I'm pointing that out. I want you to dig it out, I want you to be radical, and I want you to be quick. Deal with the sin. Don't grovel in the dirt, Joshua. Go find it, root it out, and then get on to the next battle. And get on to the next battle. That's exactly what he says. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. After they've dealt with the sin, it says, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given... Into your hand, the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Get up and get fighting. Move on. Okay? Move on. So I have three applications for you this morning. First is this. Repent. Repentance is always good people all the time for God's people. There's probably something in your life that God's saying, uh, I've been pointing that out for a while and you're not dealing with it. So I want you to listen to the voice of the Spirit. Is there something, some sin that you need to turn from, put behind you, and deal with it quickly? radically this morning and and cut it out. Confess it to God. Confess it to someone else if you need to, if God's calling you to do that. But, but, But do it. Okay, Do it and don't procrastinate. It says when Joshua heard that there was sin, it says he ran. He ran to deal with it. And then he sent men to run to the tent aggressively, quickly. Second, move on. It may be that God pointed out a sin to you recently. You've confessed it to the Lord. And what Satan is doing to you is he's just kind of pulling you back and he's reminding you, hey, remember that? That's still bugging God. It's still bothering him. You know what? It isn't. 
Because Christ died for you and all of your sins on the cross, when God forgives, it's, it's done. So let it go. And God this morning may be saying to you, let it, let it go. God has let it go, so move on. Move on. The third, I'll tell you, is uh, look up. Look up. In the midst of our circumstances, all that we see is what we see. And we forget that all of life is spiritual. So, you know, we're looking at the dried bread and the, the clothes that are torn and the water bags are empty. We're not seeing, you know, there's something else going on here that's, that's much more profound. You may be in the midst of spiritual warfare and all you're seeing is the struggle of the circumstances. And God is saying, would you look up? Would you remember that I am strong? And I know that you're weak because I allowed you to be, be weak. I made you weak right now so you'd reach up and you'd cling to me and not yourself. And so as we close in prayer, I'd like you just to go before the Lord and ask God uh, to speak to you directly. And what is it from, from this story that God is saying to your heart? Let's take a few moments quietly and then I will close this in prayer. Father, I thank you that you care so deeply about each of us individually that your spirit speaks to us through your word or through impressions you place in our minds or through friends who speak truth to us. You are constantly, continuously drawing us into dependence upon you. I pray, Father, that we would walk out of here not with a renewed sense of our own strength but with a renewed commitment to cling to you and your power. Father, I thank you that you've demonstrated the overwhelming power that you give us by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. We trust in that this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Just depending on God. We'll see you next week.